I want to invite you now as we turn to God's Word to join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're continuing our new series, Thriving in Exile. And this morning I want you to, to dive into the text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We all experience difficulties. Peter mentions it here, right here in verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials. And we're acquainted with that on this earth, that we have all kinds of struggles. Some of them are health struggles. Some of them are relationship difficulties. There can be a sense of loss, there's loneliness at times, financial problems, personal failures, disappointments, and then there is added to that persecution from hostile unbelievers. And that's the context here that Peter is addressing first century Christians who are beginning to experience difficulties from a hostile culture because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And so this letter that Peter is writing is to to give encouragement to these struggling Christians. This is a letter of encouragement, but even though they're going through a difficult time, notice that this is not a downer of a letter. Peter here launches out in this message to discourage Christians with a burst of praise. Notice verse three again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse six again. In this, and he uses the word, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter sets the tone for all that's going to follow in this letter. And this reminds us that this really is the tone. This is the atmosphere of our Christian lives. Even in a difficult world, even a world of problems and adversaries, we are to never stop praising and giving thanks to our God. Psalm 100 says it this way, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Oh, he is worthy of our thanksgiving, even in a difficult world. Ephesians 5, 19 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So nothing that you and I could go through would ever negate what we're told here. We could never legitimately withhold praise from God. Because even in our worst trials, 
God still remains good. Even in our worst troubles, God still remains worthy of the praise that we should bring to him. Now, for us as Christians, we don't bring praise in a grudging way. We, we don't hesitate to praise him. We don't give a forced thank you to him. Now, when we're raising our children, we have to teach them to say thanks, right? And so we sometimes have to tell them, hey, now go over there and thank the nice lady for what she just did. And if you had shy children like my shy children, they're like not wanting to do it. But you're trying to be a good parent. They got to learn gratitude to express it. Like, get over there. And so they do. They give a thank you. <laughs> and you know they don't mean it. But it's still what you do. Because you know over time they're going to actually mean it. Now we're, we're Christians. And some of us have been Christians a long time now. And so we don't give a, a hesitant thanks to him. It's not a shallow little bit. It is, it is a big sense of overwhelming gratitude to God, even in our times of greatest pain. Now, I understand it doesn't come naturally to us. If we're just thinking about what comes naturally, that is not it. But I want us to be reminded today from our text, three major reasons why we should continue to rejoice in our God, even in our trials. And the first one is this. We rejoice in trials because we have been born again. We rejoice in our trials because we've been born again. And this one's huge. Through faith in Jesus, we've been made alive. So all of us know what it's like to be alive physically. We all have a birthday, and there's something about that date on the calendar when it's your birthday. And so yesterday was my day. I had that sense of that. And, and so many of you were so kind to remember that day. And even today, people wishing me happy birthday for yesterday. It was a sweet, a sweet day. And I'm grateful for that day of my birth now, many years ago, and grateful for what my mother endured on that day of my birth. I'm, I'm sure it was traumatic for both of us to get a little credit. It was, rough, it was probably rough on me that day. But I don't remember it. Of course, all the credit to my mother, and not just that, but the difficulties I put her through for 18 years before being launched out. So I'm grateful for that day. But I'm grateful for my second birthday. And I don't mean when I turned two. And maybe even when you turn one, that's your second birthday. I mean, when I was born again. I mean, that's, that's the big one. And I love, that's a great descriptor of what happens when you turn from sin, you trust in Jesus. He makes all things new. You have been born again. Jesus used this language in John 3, 3. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Interestingly, he said that to a very religious man. Making it very clear, it's not through your religious duties, it's not through your traditions, it's not through your rule keepings and trying to be good that you're going to go to heaven. Jesus said, you must be born again. Now you might be asking right now, well, why must I be born again to go to heaven? And here's the answer to that. It's because you're dead apart from Christ. The scripture is very clear. You're physically alive, but you're walking around as a spiritually dead person until Jesus comes into your life. Ephesians 2 verse 1 speaks this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So apart from Jesus raising somebody to life, they're incapable of perceiving spiritual things. Apart from this work of, of God bringing somebody to life, they're incapable of responding to God's salvation offer. So human beings always get it wrong apart from God's grace. They think, well, I, there's something I need to do to work for it. There's some religious list that I need to keep that I might somehow go to heaven. But the person who's been born again sees, no, my sin excluded me from heaven. 
My sin disqualified me. Didn't see it before, but now God is of my eyes. I see I'm convicted now of my sin. And then the person is born again sees, and it's Jesus only. Only Jesus. He, he alone lived the perfect life. And he died on a cross to atone for my sins. And he was raised from the dead. I know all of my faith. 100% of my faith is not in me. It's in Jesus. So why must we be born again? Because default, we were born dead in our sins. But then the question might be, well, how then can I be born again? If I must be born again, how? Well, we're going to be reminded in our text, we can't do it. We need this done to us. Notice our text here. He says, according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. So we cannot do this. God must do this for us. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So whenever you're in need of mercy, that means you've been wrong, right? We don't need mercy when we've been right, when we've been good. We need mercy when, oh no, I see that I'm wrong. I'm deserving of some punishment here. Now my plea is, I'd like mercy rather than justice that I have earned for myself. And the scripture says, you're born again, not because you were good and God thought, wow, that's a good one. I'm bringing that one into my family. No, you, you needed mercy, meaning not to get the condemnation that you deserved. And so this is the beautiful love and mercy of God. Notice this in the text. He caused us to be born again. It's by his mercy, but he caused us to be born again. So you didn't do this. I think, I think I'm going to up and be born again today. That's not how you came into the world through your physical birth. It's not how you're born again, that you did this. It's not your wonderful parents. It's not your wonderful church. It's God who causes people to be born again. He acted in great love to raise you from the dead if you are in Christ. And so we see the same teaching in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and following. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so we can rejoice in our very painful trials because we've been born again. Something huge and amazing has happened. But then Peter unpacks this even further. He says this, he caused us to be born again, catch this, to a living hope. And that's what we just sang about a few moments ago. We have an ongoing, active hope. Even in our sorrows and sufferings, we have an enduring hope in a living Savior. And this doesn't just benefit us later in life when we're about to die. Like, okay, I have hope through death because of Jesus. Boy, it sure, certainly does bring us hope in that moment. But this is a living hope. We live in this hope all through our lives. Now, when we talk about hope biblically... We're not using it like we sometimes commonly use it out and about in life. We often use the word hope typically in our everyday life like this. Well, I hope so. When we use the phrase, I hope so, we mean there's a large measure of doubt, but I'm hoping so. But sometimes when we watch sports and the announcer will say, well, there's still a half a second on the clock and uh, there's still hope. But we all know not very much. Not very, it's a Hail Mary pass. Maybe it'll bounce around, land in the hands of the receiver I'm pulling for. Maybe, but we know that's a slim thing. Biblical hope is not that. Biblical hope is the opposite of hopeless. So when we say something's hopeless, this is a hopeless situation, what are we saying? We're saying there's, there's no hope. We, we know we're doomed. That's what we say. When there's no hope, I know I'm doomed. But the opposite is hope, where I know I'm not doomed. Because I know God, 
This is not hopeless. I know this is going to work out because I know him. We have a living hope. So according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now what's next? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how can I have a confidence like that, an assurance like that? Because my confidence is in a risen Savior, a living Savior. And so Jesus was raised from the dead. The promise is he will raise you also up to life. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So we're born again because of the work of a risen Savior, giving his body and blood on the cross and being raised from the dead on the third day. Then he continues to an inheritance. We've been born again. We're talking about reasons why we rejoice, even in our struggles. We've been born again, and we've been born again to an inheritance. Now, that's Old Testament language. The chosen people of God, Israel, they were given an inheritance. And now here we are, the New Testament people of God, in on that inheritance. So, yes, we're exiles on the earth, as we saw in the first few verses of 1 Peter last time. This is not our home but we're awaiting something far superior than anything that this world can offer. We have an inheritance that will last. Now, I don't know if you've ever received an inheritance. That is a wonderful thing. I've never received a large inheritance, but when my grandmother died a number of years ago now, she left each of her grandchildren a, a very modest inheritance. And I'm talking just in a few thousand dollars, but it, but it came at such a wonderful time. We were outfitting ourselves to go overseas and and so we needed a new computer. We needed a laptop to go from a desktop, needed a laptop to take with us over to Central Asia. And so with that, with that inheritance, I was able to buy a, a little laptop, a Dell laptop. And then in those days, an external CD-ROM goofy looking box. And that's, that's what we were going to take overseas to stay in touch with people back home. And, and so here's what I can tell you about that, that wonderful inheritance that my grandmother gave us. It's gone. It's gone. That Dell computer's gone. It didn't even last during one term overseas. That little trackball that it had on there instead of a mouse pad and all that, it, it just didn't make it then. Though we were grateful. That CD-ROM thing, nobody even needs that anymore. That's certainly gone. The point is, any inheritance we get here, it is wonderful, but it's so temporary. Contrast that with what Peter says here about the inheritance we have in Christ because we're born again into Christ. Listen, he says it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Peter, even in the original language, he alliterates that. He's just making the point that, that this is something better than anything that the world is offering to you. So let me ask you, just test this a minute. Do you possess anything else materially in your life that you could use those three words to describe it? Is there anything you possess that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? So anything like that? Some of you might be preppers. I prep a little bit. You might be a prepper. You think, I got a bunch of non-perishable things. You better check the date on that ravioli. <laughs> it's going to last a few years. You better start checking the can because at some point, it's going to perish. And you won't want to eat it. There's just nothing we have materially that is going to be imperishable. And what we're offered in the Lord, what a wonderful description of that. This is confidence too. As we talk about looming persecution, potential in our culture, we don't know exactly what it looks like. We certainly look at the legislation that's proposed and what they want to do to people who have a biblical understanding of things. And we say there, there may very readily be a financial cost to following Jesus. But here's confidence. They can't take from us what ultimately matters. They cannot take from us what ultimately lasts. 
And so obviously we pray against injustices and all that, but what God has given us, I love this next phrase, he says it's kept in heaven for you. That is more secure than any vault you and I can imagine. What Jesus has given us in causing us to be born again, this inheritance we have, it's kept in heaven for us. It's beyond anyone's reach to take from us. So one day you and I will enter into heaven by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be made completely whole. We will have lost none of our reward. We will none of us feel cheated by God or anybody else. We have imperishable treasures kept in heaven for us. This is just the joy of being born again. And so Jesus tells us because of that, that truth that what really matters and lasts is what he has stored up for us in heaven. It, it does have a bearing on how we live here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and following, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we rejoice in our trials because we've been born again and all that comes with it. Secondly, we rejoice in our trials because we are guarded by God's power. We rejoice in our trials because we've been guarded by God's power. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed and in the last time. So yes, your in eternal inheritance has been secured and guarded by God, kept in heaven. But now we're told... Even you have been secured and guarded by God, by God's great power. So no persecutor can take your inheritance and no persecutor can steal your faith in Jesus. You are guarded by God's power. Think about that. That's God's omnipotent, unlimited, unparalleled power. No force on earth is any match for God. And God says to you through Peter here, you've been guarded. Your faith has been guarded. Notice we're guarded, he says, through faith. So God gives you your faith. He guards it and strengthens your faith. God guards your standing in Christ. Nothing and no one can take you from Christ. So when we're told in the word here that God guards your faith, he guards you through faith, we're, we're learning here that he's guarding the most precious thing you possess, your faith. How is this so precious. Well, we're told in verse seven, your faith is more precious than gold. Did you see it? And do you believe that? Do you believe that your faith in Jesus is the most precious thing that you have? Infinitely precious. Why would it be so precious? Greater than even gold. Well, we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It's through our faith in Jesus that we're reconciled to God. You see how valuable this is. Nothing else matters compared to that. It's through your faith in Jesus, the righteous one, that you are made righteous in the sight of God. The righteousness of Jesus is credited to you because your faith is not in yourself. It's in what Jesus has accomplished for you. So if you fail to have faith in Jesus, you really don't have anything. It's really a wasted life. But if you have faith in Jesus, even if everything else were taken from you, oh, you are infinitely rich. It's greater than any amount of gold. So God guards your faith he guards the faith of his children all the way until you reach him in heaven. No one can separate you from Christ. You can see that message throughout the New Testament, but how about for our encouragement? Let's just remind ourselves of Romans chapter 8. And maybe this afternoon you will just read all of Romans 8. 
But for just a taste of this encouragement, Romans 8, 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are secure. Even in your trials, you are guarded by God himself. How about this? Jesus's words in John 10, 28. How encouraging. John 10, 28. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You are guarded by God. He guards his children. He's guarding your faith. Nobody can separate you from him. Now, one of the major ways that God guards your faith until he takes you home is through the word. This is, this is a major reason why he inspired the word and preserved the word. And you have the word of God in your hands is that your faith would grow perpetually until you meet the Lord in heaven. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so have you noticed that when you get into the scriptures, your faith gets stronger. Now, have you noticed the opposite? If you really diminish the role of the word of God in your life and you maximize just taking endless, for example, just lots of news. Like you're a news junkie, I'm on this news channel, that news channel, whichever one, I'm on this news app. If you just consume it hours and hours, it's, it's bad news, isn't it? Plenty of reasons for discouragement, plenty of reasons for despair. If that's your main diet of what you're feeding your brain. This is why it's so critical. You, you must just yes, stay informed, but I would say enough's enough. Like I kind of have the picture today. I know what the main issues are. Now let me go to the word of God. Let me filter all this news through the truth of God's word. And as you do, you'll find, okay, I'm steadied by the scriptures. What God says about these times is this. This is not a shock. He told us a long time ago, these days and other days are coming. We're ready for this. I mean, just think about what we've just seen in these two weeks in 1 Peter. We've seen this. Who are we in a difficult world? We are exiles, yes. But we are elect exiles. How encouraging is that? Just today in this one passage, we've seen that we're born again. We have a living hope. Just today we've seen we have an imperishable inheritance. And we're guarded by God's great power. And this will all result in the praise and glory of God forever when Jesus returns. So please, take in the word of God. Don't wait till next Sunday to have an infusion of God's word. Let your faith be stirred up and encouraged and fostered all week long, daily meeting with God. And if you're new to that whole idea, just reach out this week. Like, what would that look like? How do you do that? Because I don't want to put a guilt trip on you to read the Bible and you think, I don't know how. We're all about teaching people to do that. Wouldn't even take long. It's, it's pretty simple, but love to talk to you about that. So use that connection card online or catch me after the service. Would love to show you how simple that is, how beautiful that is, how life-giving and faith-building it is to daily meet with the Lord. But let me ask you this question. As we just think about the reality that God is guarding your faith, that is more precious than gold. Do you live like that's a reality? That, that your faith is more precious than gold? Does that show up? Or would you be honest and say, no, I have acted like my material things are more precious than faith. I mean, your energy 
is going to show that. Your passion is going to show that. If it's all about accumulating more, guarding what you have, dreaming about more, and that's your passion, then, and, and, and you don't have that kind of passion for Jesus and, and growing your faith in him, then your priorities are off. For some people, it's not that. It's their physical body. You can get so enamored with your body. I'm only going to put pristine ingredients in my body. And I'm going to work out my body. And I'm going to look at myself in the mirror for my body before I go to the beach because it's all about me. Listen, if you're passionate about that and you look and you don't have a corresponding or greater passion even for Jesus and growing your faith, priorities are off and human beings can stray into these things. But your faith is more precious than gold. And God is guarding it. So reasons for why you and I can rejoice in difficult times is because we've been born again. And our great God is guarding us by his power. And then this, we rejoice in trials because our trials have a purpose. Our trials have a purpose. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? If necessary, our trials, we see necessary. How so? Because God has ordained them. It doesn't mean that we like them. It certainly doesn't mean we understand what God's doing in them. I've, I've never had a problem that I liked. That'd be weird. Like, I like that one. I've, I've never had a trial or adversity. I've never cried and thought, this is wonderful. I don't want to do this again. But no, if necessary. So God in his sovereignty will allow things into our lives, things that don't feel good, but that God will use for good. Now, how do we know God will do that? Because he promises us this. This is where we take that faith that's more precious than gold. And we go look at it from God's perspective. So places like Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or how about James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in your current problems, in your current griefs, you can, while weeping even, continue to rejoice in your salvation. Even through tears, you can rejoice in a God who's still working even through what you're going through. So yes, God uses his word to grow your faith. He also uses adversity to grow your faith, doesn't he? There's something about when your faith gets tested, like here, as it's being refined like gold is refined in the fire, God will grow your faith through difficult times. And I, I really think it's interesting. It's, it's a bit like how God has designed our physical bodies. Have you noticed when your body is put under duress through exercise, that's when it gets strong. It almost seems counterintuitive. Like, let me play it safe. Let me not move this body. Let me preserve this body and I will be stronger. But that's not how God designed it. Maybe you remember when you thought the last time, I'm gonna, I need to get in shape and I'm gonna start by just going for a walk. And that first time you go for a walk, you're like, I can't, I can't go very far. And then the next time you go out, cause you're gonna push it. I don't feel like doing this again, but I'm gonna make myself, you know, I, I walked farther this time than last time. I put myself under this adversity Easier to sit on the couch, but here I go. And then if you keep doing it, I, I can't believe it. I'm walking, I'm jogging, I'm doing that. Same people who lift weights have the same experience. That, that first day, you can't lift much and you can't lift it many times. You put your body through punishment. But through that adversity, if you do it again the next day and the next day, you'll find, well, now I'm lifting more. Who would have thought by stressing my body, my body would get stronger. Now I can lift more and more times 
And our faith is much the same way. The testing of our faith produces endurance. God is using the adversities that we don't like to bring about something very good. And, and we see this in each other in the life of the church, don't we? I've watched wonderful saints in the church go through difficult, difficult things and then watch them, watch them still shine with a, yes, with tears, but an unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. I think about Jean Windsor. I think I mentioned her some months ago as an illustration of this. I, I, I'll do it again. <laughs> I just think about Jean. One of our older women, if you're new to the church, you don't know Jean, what a sweet woman she was and is in the presence of the Lord now. But I remember years ago as her pastor, walking with her when her husband died, what a grief that is. And watching her just steady, still loving Jesus, still involved in our prayer ministry here, praying for others. And then when she was facing her own death and literally on her deathbed in the hospital, visiting her and she's caring about other people. And she's caring for the nurses who are attending to her. And she's even sharing Christ with one of those in particular. I can think of it from another country. And just, just to the end, faith. How, how did that happen? Because through all these trials of her life, responding and allowing God to grow her faith, this precious faith to the end, oh, greater worth than gold. But we're all being tested in many, many ways. COVID is testing us, isn't it? Here we live in this time, and it's been a miserable year in a lot of ways. And I don't know anybody who has liked COVID and all the ramifications of it. But let me ask you, in this time of testing, what has God revealed about you in this year of COVID? Because every Christian's been tested during COVID-19, and every church has been tested, and some of what's been revealed isn't so good, is it? So, so let's ask, after a year of all these things, lockdowns and guidelines and all these things, and real sickness, do you love Jesus more than you did last year? Or have you found, well, no, I know I'm angrier than I was a year ago, is that the direction the Lord was working this? Have you become more political this year? Or have you become more spiritual this year? It's testing is revealing something. And so the testing of our faith really should be moving us and growing us in Christ. I'll tell you this, COVID is not the last test we're going to experience until the Lord calls us home. We, we are anticipating rising cultural opposition for our biblical faith. Every Christian is going to be tested. Every church is going to be tested. And so let me ask you in advance, if, if the persecution heats up even more, will you be stronger in Christ through what persecution comes? Will you be more useful to Christ through the persecution that's coming? Or will you let your faith wither under the pressure? Peter says, you can rejoice. You can rejoice. He doesn't even command rejoicing. He says, in this, you do rejoice. This is what Christians do. In the midst of adversity, we're still praising God. How do we do it? We keep our eyes fixed on Christ and the super abundant grace and mercy he has given to us and continues to give to us. So I think this, as we keep our eyes on Jesus through our, our present struggles, our present heartaches, and whatever God allows to come in the future, I believe we have a great opportunity here. Peter talks about the genuineness of your faith, this tested genuineness. We have a chance to display to a world that, that may see us suffer and see, well, I now, now I know it's real. When everything was going well or we thought we were, we were stronger than we were and then majority, I think if this world watches us and we show, listen, this faith is being tested, but it's real. And we have an undiminished joy in our Lord. It's all true, imperishable inheritance. That can't be taken from us. There's a great opportunity. So even if our suffering increases in the months and years ahead here, we have an opportunity to show that our faith is increasing. And we have a beautiful Savior that we want to introduce people to. Our greatest impact may be just ahead, even if the difficulties are just ahead. So prepare for this in your mind. 
plan for this, strategize for this. And our growing genuine faith will result in great praise to God and great reward from God. Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So today I, I want to offer this invitation. If you don't yet know Jesus, would you turn and trust in Jesus? Allow him to cause you to be born again, to give you an imperishable inheritance. There's nothing like it. Please turn from everything lesser that you might have Jesus. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. Put your trust in him. And as you've trusted in him, listen, you can rejoice even in trouble because you've been born again. You can rejoice even in trouble because you're being guarded by God's power. And you can rejoice even in trials because our trials even have a purpose in Christ. Pray with me.